0: hello center church very happy to be with you again as we continue in our series focusing on the parables of jesus we are in the last few parables now. And so, today, we're looking at twin parables, which are foundational. They're valuable in their own right, but they're also foundational for understanding the parable of the prodigal son. And those two parables are the lost sheep and the lost coin. So, these are the parables that will receive our focus today. Uh, They are partner parables, um, and Jesus, in fact, often taught in these Kinds of partner parables. I've mentioned that in passing in prior messages. And the lost sheep, lost coin parables, this pair is the preeminent example of of this mode of teaching. These partner parables at once serve to illuminate one another. So really it's one can't be understand understood well without Having the the other in mind, but they also, again, are this necessary prelude to the parable of the prodigal son, or the parable of the lost son, which um, which will address almost certainly after after the holidays. The two main interlocking themes of this teaching concern divine determination and divine love. So at a thematic level, we're going to be talking at once about divine determination and divine love. Um, And as has been an ongoing sidebar in this series, uh, we've discussed throughout the wrong readings that are often also anti-Jewish readings, ahistorical or anachronistic readings, and these bad approaches can, can really dominate many parable and gospel interpretations. And here again, um, I want to remind all of you, particularly our community within Center, that many of the underlying values espoused by Jesus were also values that were held and celebrated by the Pharisees themselves in general. And we'll find that to be the case in this teaching as well as we look at the lost sheep and the lost coin. And as we keep this in mind, we'll also see the ways these two parables provide a foundation for understanding the hope that we should have and the joy that we should have as members of God's kingdom. And that will be addressed only in part today, but more so in the following one or two teachings on these partner parables and the following parable of the prodigal son. So those are just some initial and brief comments on the partner parables, the lost sheep and the lost coin. Um, if if you are somebody who reads along, uh, this is um, the the parables can be found elsewhere, um, and we'll possibly step aside to look at the treatment of these parables in Matthew. But our focus is on Luke chapter fifteen verses four through ten. So here's Luke chapter fifteen. Um, I've been over the last um, I don't know, maybe six months or a year or something. Um, I can't really remember. Over the last oh, the, the, the weird year, right? So over the last six months or so, um, I've been um reading through and and processing David Bentley Hart's translation of the New Testament, and I found it to be really fascinating um and um and really enjoyable. And so um i've been I've been in that in that translation, and so I'll be reading from that today, even though of course at times we step away to look at more um, more precise precise representations of the Greek. But here we are in Luke chapter fifteen, uh, beginning at verse four, What man among you owning a hundred sheep and losing one of them? does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go afar after one that has been lost until he finds it. And finding it, he joyfully places it on his shoulders, and entering the house, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I found my sheep that had been lost. I tell you that such will the joy be in heaven." Over one sinner changing his heart, more than over ninety-nine upright men having no need of a change of heart? Or what woman possessing ten drachmas, if she loses one drachma, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently till she finds it? And finding it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, because I found the drachma that I lost. Thus I tell you, There is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner changing his heart. So while much is happening in these partner parables, I want us to focus today on essentially one construct, which is divine determination as a form of divine love. So we're going to be looking at these communicating themes, divine determination as a form of divine love, maybe a brief note that... um, I'm, I'm really, I do not have in view the question of either determinism or uh, divine determination as in um, a central tenet of some some branches of, of the Christian faith, which has to do with God's sovereignty. Uh, rather, determination really meant as the insistence and persistence of God um, to love his to love his his creation, and it's this parable that that centralizes the divine determination and divine love of God. In fact, uh, this divine determination should be seen as an essential revelation of uh, of the nature of God Himself. And um, something something I'm that that I'm now learning about how to experience God, and and for me this is is um, this personally is reducing several, uh, I suppose, experiential tensions between classical theism and, and something like theistic personalism, which has a lot to do with how we view God interacting with, with his creation. So some, something that I'm not learning about how to experience God is that, that focusing on the, uh, the, the eagerness of God to know you, Focusing on the eagerness of God to know you is the door by which you enter into the experience of God through all things, which is in a classical theistic construct, this might be understood as the transcendent or omnipresence of God. But but to put that again, uh, to put that to a point once more, um, focusing on the eagerness the determination of God to know you is the door by which you enter into the experience of God through all things. So I'm not trying to, I mean, it's it's beyond the scope of this teaching to even begin to deal with classical theism and theistic personalism. So I'm not trying to rabbit trail onto that, but I just want to highlight something that the imagery um, that the Bible gives us, and I, I suppose I should say I I believe that it's more than imagery, but the way the Bible portrays the very personal interactions between God and his creation. I think it's, is, I think it's necessary to adopt these portrayals so that when we don't have, so that when we don't experience personal interactions with god like like maybe we were brought up to experience we can because we see these these construals of god as true we can therefore trust in in our broader experiences of of a transcendent god present through all things present in nature not in all things but revealing himself through th- through all things, by accepting the pictures that the Bible gives us of God as father, as shepherd, for example, by accepting these things, by holding them as true, we will experience God. We will be able to map our experiences of the transcendent God onto our lives in a way that gives us rest, peace, allows us to trust in God's activity in the world and God's interest in our lived experience. Look, if if, if God is committed to finding you, where can you go that he isn't? If God is committed to finding you, where can you go that he isn't? What image could be more captivating than one of God seeking you in every wilderness of your life. And that's the image that we are given in the parable of the lost sheep. A God that seeks us out. An unrelenting, personal picture of a God that seeks us out, that is utterly committed to finding you and if it's true that god is committed to finding you you can be confident that he is with you now you can you can know truly you can know that he is with you now and and you can know you can trust that you're not merely reading tea leaves that you're not merely organizing the experiences of your life to, to, f- to fabricate some, some fairy tale. It's this personal picture of the of the divine determination of God, which which is is a part and parcel of the divine love of God that gives us rest and hope as we begin to see the transcendent God moving through all parts of our life. And the, the partner parables are useful here. There's, there's an intentional distance between this likely wealthy shepherd, a shepherd who has something like 100 sheep, a flock of 100 sheep, going out to find the single sheep, and the likely poor woman seeking out a single drachma in her home. God is like both of these, or uh, God looks like both of these. The shepherd likely leaves the sheep with under shepherds, uh, those hired to keep up with uh, a large flock, or, and maybe less likely, but certainly I think a more compelling way of thinking about this parable is that there are no sheep to leave behind because. And this is the you know some of the cleverness of Jesus, the righteous who need no repentance. The ninety nine uh, do not exist in the first place. God is like both of these. That's how, and we've learned this from uh, um, several parables throughout this series. That's how far God reaches. That's how thorough. God is. God is like both of these. He is the rich shepherd seeking out the single sheep all the way to the poor woman who's looking for a single drachma in a dark, poorly lit home. No stone is left unturned. All experiences in life, the, look at the, the diversity of experience that is represented here and everything in between, all experiences of life should not be left out when we consider God seeking after us. All experiences in our lives necessarily include a God that is committed to finding you. All experiences in your life necessarily include a God that is committed to finding you. Is this a parable that gives us a picture of Jesus always going into the wilderness. A picture of God always outside the city gate. An ongoing and relentless mission for every single one. I think my concern for, um, you know, for for, for those of, uh, for the community, um, for the center community and, and, and for those, Outside that are that are networked with us is that we take these parables and um, we move quickly past them, as opposed to I mean I, admittedly that the question I asked is a loaded one, but but also like it it deserves actual consideration. Is this a parable that gives us a picture of of Jesus always going into the wilderness of God's ongoing? And relentless mission for every single one, and I'm not trying to say i'm not I'm not making commentary at this moment about salvation about eschatology i'm really I'm simply observing the parable itself and how seriously are we willing to take it? how much are we willing to receive it um so um Capon calls this, referring to the lost sheep, the lost coin, the paradox of lostness. This is from um, from his, one of his books. He implies, it seems to me, that even if all 100 sheep should get lost, it will not be a problem for this bizarrely good shepherd because he is first and foremost in the business of finding the lost not of making a messianic buck off the unstrayed. Give him a world with a hundred out of every hundred souls lost. Give him, in other words, the world full of losers that is the only real world we have. And it will do just fine. Lostness is exactly his cup of tea. Accepting this, affirming it, having faith in it as true... This, this divine determination, this form of God's divine love is a way, again, by which a way by which we experience the presence of God's Spirit because we're affirming the nature of who God is. And it puts many of you, in some ways, in a difficult position. If you're slightly analytical, it isn't necessarily that you're skeptic to these things, even though some of you might be. Rather, it's a genuine question that I know many of you have asked you know what? What exactly does this mean? What does it feel like to believe this? A God determined in this way to reach to reach the sheep. Sh- should I? Should I? At what level? At what register should I expect to encounter a God like this? And what I'm trying to what I'm trying to tell you that this the thing this parable gives us is that before you expect to encounter a God like this, there has to be um, even even the smallest kernel of a faith commitment that God is in fact like this, and then you begin to see God at work. If you're skeptical to this, if you're if if at a at a level of of um, analysis, you say, well, you know, essentially what you're doing is you're just you're choosing to organize the data in a way that allows you to see the thing that you want to see. What I'm trying to communicate here is that all of us will always be organizing our Experiences to construct some kind of narrative. So the idea that as humans we get away from this is ludicrous, and the idea that as people we are somehow un—we can we can turn off the faith mechanism—is also, I, I reject that as well. Both the materialist view and the theistic view require faith commitments. What Christianity offers is a portrait. of A picture of God who is, is in fact, transcendent and for this reason endlessly loving. And therefore, we we can believe in an image, an image of God, an image of God who is a shepherd, who will not give up on even one sheep. This is the end of Psalm 119. Um, beginning at verse 169. May my cry come before you, Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. May my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your promise. May my lips overflow with praise, for you teach me your decrees. May my tongue sing of your word, for all your commands are righteous. May your hand be ready to help me for i have chosen your precepts i long for your salvation lord and i and your law gives me delight let me live that i may praise you and may your laws sustain me i have strayed like a lost sheep seek your servant for i have not forgotten your commands Young references a midrash um, uh, on, on Psalm 119, uh, quoting uh, Rabbi Judah, uh, who says this As things go in the world, when a sheep strays from the flock, or an ox strays from the pasture, who seeks whom? The sheep or the shepherd? Seek me as the sheep is sought. And instead of just allowing that to stay where it is and, and chalking it up to you know religious imagery, uh, religious language, what what might that actually mean? What does it mean to be sought after in this way? It means that order is brought to our interior lives it means that meaning is is charged through our experiences so that so that in the wilderness of our lives we know god is present it's not it's not merely happy religious imagery or language it is meant to be received as something that can be applied To your life, this is a picture of a determined, relentless God. How much agency really does the sheep or the coin have? Seek your heart and mind and make a faith commitment. In other words, believe that God cares about you in this kind of way. His determination to reach you is as profound as him entering into the wilderness, entering into flesh, entering into death. First, we must receive God's divine love. First, we must realize God's divine determination for each sheep. It is only then that we find the fortitude to do the work that he has put in front of us to do. So where is the provocation in this? Where's the challenge? Um, we know that that is a certainty in the parables of Jesus. Um, as we think about divine determination, as we think about this as a form of God's love, we have to ask what this means for the follower of Christ, for for those of us who, who want to imitate Jesus um, and I I think that's where the challenge um, shows up. God has arranged a a universe where his determination is, in fact, enacted in part through his people, through his family. What this means is, as O'Connor says, we have to cherish the world at the same time we endure it. We have to we have to. We have to cherish the world at the same time we endure it. The divine joy of God, the divine love of God is shared with us in this unexpected way. Here's Flannery O'Connor from um, her letters in the Habit of Being. The only thing that makes the church endurable is that it is somehow the body of Christ and that on this we are fed. How many times have some of you thought that? It seems to be a fact that you have to suffer as much from the church as for it. But if you believe in the divinity of Christ, you have to cherish the world at the same time that you struggle to endure it. For us to have, and this is this is what I mean, I've brought this up over the last year particularly or last year and a half with, with Center, I want us to be the kind of community that is, is rooted in our faith and mature in our commitment to Christ so that we weather the suffering and the hard work and the exhaustion and the frustrations that are in front of us. You'll cherish the world if you believe that through it, God is speaking, that through it, God is loving you and forming you, that through it, God's divine determination is made manifest. You will cherish the world, but you will also suffer it because for all of that, we are also provoked, called to take on Christ's suffering, to take up the cross, And to represent God, to represent his divine determination in the world in which we live, these partner parables present to us the theme of divine determination as a form of divine love. And this theme leads to um, the two points that I have um, for for the teaching today. Again, remember God God's divine determination is is something that we are to enjoy, but it is also something that is enacted through us. And these two points are are really sourced from Levine's work on on these parables. Number one, notice what is missing. And number two, notice who is missing. Notice what is missing and notice who is missing. Um, let's, let's start with the Shema and take a moment on, um, on the Shema. Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away. When you lie down and when you rise, bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Notice who is missing and notice what is missing. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our being And this provocation means that you look at the world around you and you express, the Spirit through you expresses God's divine determination to speak truth into the world, to bring about the kingdom. This year, for some of you, the greatest assault has been on your commitment to the work, the interesting work that God has put in front of you. There are words that have not been spoken that you need to speak. There's, there's music that has not been made, that, that, that has been put before you to do. There's, there's work that's not been done. We believe that the that kingdom building is, is this restoration project. And it means that all of the work that God puts before you is a part of his divine plan and an expression of his divine love. And and it looks it's it's quite varied the way it looks from one individual to another. But the work that you you notice, you may not know exactly what it is and that's again the difference between you know the worker and the architect, but you notice that there is something missing. And so you and so you show up every day and you're engaging in the good work to to bring about God's kingdom order, notice what is missing. Notice who is missing. Think about Leviticus 23, um, that that, um, ancient Israelites were called to leave the corners of their fields for the poor. Who is not being taken care of? Who is not being included? Who is not being considered? Notice what is missing. Notice who is missing. By the way, interestingly, um, and and there's, there's, there's much that could really be said about this, but the Greek word that is used to describe the wandering sheep is primarily one that communicates deceit or deception. And this is also a sort of care and 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 a, and a form of love that we should extend to others, which is to say, some of you, the work that you need to do, the what that is missing is there are people um, that are in your uh, that are in your spheres that are not thinking rightly and therefore they are not living rightly. There are people that you know that you love, that you profess um, kind of a familial bo- a communal bond with, and these people, some of them are are quite lost. And of course, even though they're, you know, they're present with you, they are missing. It's really interesting that the, you know, I don't, we, I suppose we can make too much of it, but it's interesting to note that the sheep, this is, this is the idea that the sheep is, is somehow, is somehow deceived, which is, you know, kind of unusual to extend the parable in that way. But it's you know it's it's uncomfortable to sit down with people and try to I mean frankly encourage them into right headed thinking about what is going on in their lives. It can be done in humility. It can be done in love. It sometimes will lead to conflict, and that is a part of our role in being um a, in being the family of God. And of course, it it, it often is more. It's more nuanced than simply sitting down with somebody and 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 reading off a list of grievances or concerns and and ending a conversation um, it probably goes without saying that I'm not saying that but it but this does call this this divine determination our role in God's divine determination as an outworking of his love does call for us to be engaged at that level it it does It it, it calls for us to recommit ourselves to the principle that thinking rightly leads to living rightly. Um, This is from Young, again from Young, who Young quotes uh, a Midrashic text, and I'm I'm just going to read it to you. This is um, the Good Shepherd parable featuring Moses. Really interesting, uh, some of the takeaways in this. The Holy One tested Moses by means of the flock, as our rabbis explained. When Moses, our teacher, was tending to Jethro's flock in the wilderness, a lamb scampered off and Moses followed it until it approached a shelter under a rock. As the lamb reached the shelter, it came upon a pool of water and stopped to drink. When Moses caught up with it, he said, I did not know that you ran away because you were thirsty. Now you must be tired. So he hoisted the lamb on his shoulder and started walking back with it. The Holy One then said, because you showed such compassion in tending the flock of a mortal as you live, you shall become the shepherd of Israel, the flock that is mine. Real compassion. This determination that is an outworking of, of God's divine love, real compassion, requires appropriate knowledge real compassion requires wisdom this is not merely about you being in right standing because you've said everything that needs to be said it's it should it, we should treat our interactions our interactions with one another with all of the nuance and care and consideration that we bring to the the other vocations that god has put in front of us We're very considerate when it comes to our professional lives and how to advance our work there and how to be experts in our field, how to be craftsmen, how to be superior in our homes, and how to be um, excellent as parents, as leaders in our community, as business owners, as writers and poets, as artists of all kinds all kinds. We're incredibly intentional about that. And we see it as the, as the, um, um, we see it as an art form and because it is, and we see it as delicate because it matters and we're determined and we, we feel God at work in it equally. When we are communicating with one another, we need to bring, we need to bring a level of interest to that. That is more than casual. And we need to take one another seriously because we, we have to be provoked to engage in this determined, um, we have to have a determined heart. In both the what and the who, we have to be people of God who are seriously committed to seeing wholeness in the world in which we live. Uh, a final quote uh, from Levine, Here or she is offering context to uh, these parables. If one has five sheep, noting only four on the hillside would be easy to do. It is less easy, perhaps impossible, to notice one missing out of 100. Most people, expecting a hundred coins in a jar or daisies in a field, could not spot one missing without not only counting, but also organizing into rows. One out of a hundred is easy to overlook, But as soon as the owner recognizes his loss, he takes whatever steps are needed in order to bring the group to wholeness. Even a missing 1% must be noticed. And if he can notice the missing one and diligently seek to find it, he reminds listeners that perhaps they have lost something or someone as well, but have not noticed it. Before the search can begin, we need to notice what or who is not there. We must take responsibility for one another. A family cannot be at once incomplete and whole. A kingdom cannot be at once incomplete and whole. And you cannot be at once incomplete and whole. It's a reasonable question to ask, how far should we take this principle? How far in the craft, and the work, how far uh, with, with those people that God has put into my life, how far would you expect me to go? And in the parable, um, I think we are given the answer. Well, Center Church, I think we have, this is a Christmas miracle. I mean, we're under 40 minutes, two parables, the Shema. Uh, Leviticus 13, Psalm 119, midrash on Moses, Flannery O'Connor, in under 40 minutes. I hope you have a wonderful week. We'll talk again next time. <laughs>